Welcome to TopCast, and this time for a discussion across time. I've been doing a lot of critiques lately. Well, in fact, a lot of TopCast, a lot of the content there is a critique of some kind of misconception that's out there. Because I happen to think that people like David Deutsch and Karl Popper and some others are actually providing us with genuine explanations about the world, but they are not well known enough, and therefore we have to not only explain what they're saying, because they've already done that, but also to counter all the misconceptions that are out there, the things that people already think they know. Now, for me personally, sometimes this can get a little wearisome, because you're saying the same kind of thing over and over again. The style of writing with some of these people is impenetrable, it's obtuse, it's very abstract, there's no examples to hang your arguments on, that kind of thing. And so I guess just in terms of a cleansing exercise, I wanted to go back to the master himself, back to Karl Popper and read some of his material just by way of comparison and just to (laughs) reassure myself that there are actually people out there who do make sense on this stuff. I said recently in an episode of TopCast that it's so fortunate we have David Deutsch to discuss physics, philosophy and much else with. The creator of the theory of quantum computation is around, but Alan Turing is not. The creator of the theory of good explanations is around though Karl Popper is not. Anti-rational memes, the importance of crucial experimental testing, static versus dynamic societies, knowledge as useful information, and knowledge with reach. And knowledge as biological or explanatory, and AGI as people. Though Charles Darwin, we imagine, might have been truly astonished at all of that, we can't ask him about it, but we can chat to David. Books, of course, are a kind of asynchronous conversation across time and space, except, well, it's one way. And today I want to try that anyway with Karl Popper and what he wrote. As I say, I've been complaining recently that philosophy in general is rather too often abstract and impractical. Ludwig Wittgenstein is a wonderful case in point. Not only does his philosophy swallow itself in an abstract singularity of sorts, it says that All philosophy, including itself, is pointless. And once you understand this fact of reality, you can do away with the whole thing. But besides that, Wittgenstein's work has a complete poverty of examples, instances of where this stuff is practically useful. But of course, he has to say that. He has to leave all that out. He has to leave out actual philosophical problems, instances where the philosophy is needed, because it's counter to his central thesis. His central thesis being, the whole project is pointless anyway. (laughs) Wittgenstein's first work, the Tractatus Logico-Philosophicus, usually just called the Tractatus, is a barely legible list of statements set out like some sort of formal proof. It's intended to be a proof of a kind, leading to the final statement in the work that, quote, whereof one cannot speak, thereof one must be silent, end quote. So he basically concluded that the purported subject matter of philosophy, indeed, anything outside of mathematics and science and maybe history, that kind of thing, referred to stuff which were outside the facts of reality that we get from our senses or from reason. So it was pointless to talk about those things because words could not properly label them. They may or may not exist, but we can't speak about them in some technical sense because the function of language is to talk about the content of our senses and thoughts. So much for Wittgenstein. His only other real work of note was Philosophical Investigations, a book claimed as ranking number one, literally number one, by college and university teachers in the US as the most important work of the 20th century. But again, that book, it's all about language. 
He talks about language games. He talks about family resemblances as the way words get their meanings. He talks about the duck-rabbit illusion and beetles in boxes, if you can believe it. Basically, lots of thought experiments, lots of philosophy in the abstract disconnected from actual problems in science or mathematics or anywhere else. It's stuff about language. It's not concrete. Well, unless you're a linguist or something. It's very narrow and it doesn't help anyone much in practical terms. Wittgenstein is the philosopher's philosopher. He writes about what we can't know without really grappling with what it means to know something. So he tells you all the way in which we can't know something without telling you how it is we actually know. <laughs> he conjures up abstract thought experiments like, well, what if everyone's carrying around a box but they can't look inside, but they refer to what's inside the box as a beetle? Well, big mystery. To what does the word beetle refer? That's the kind of thing so many philosophers engage in. Purely abstract stuff. Beetles, which might or might not exist, said to be in boxes that cannot be opened. I mean, this is the most important work of the 20th century, according to some? This is, in a sense, why Popper is not the philosopher's philosopher. He is the anti-philosopher philosopher. And I mean that in the best possible way. He's completely at odds in so many ways with all other philosophers and their philosophies. Because he's talking about meaty stuff, concretes. You open up random pages in his books or his papers and he's writing about what Darwin or Einstein did, what Newton and Descartes were considering, what their problems were, Dirac, Faraday, Planck, Pythagoras, Plato, Ptolemy. I mean, I'm just scratching the surface here. He's like a scientist of the history of ideas, a scientist of knowledge. He is looking at what is done, how it's done, and how those guys explained what they were doing and perhaps clearing up misconceptions they had. He's going to the history of ideas and solving problems. It's not out there in the ether, in the abstract land of how words might or might not behave, so to speak. It's not the science of words. It's a science of ideas. Okay, I'm pushing the limits of the term science there, but you know what I mean. He's actually investigating, explaining, theorizing, testing, refuting, and the clarity, the clarity when you compare what he says how he writes to anyone else is just striking. Yes, I know people read Popper, especially after they've read Deutsch, and they say, oh, it's very dry and it's hard to understand. Well, yes, yes, relative to Deutsch, Popper is dry and more difficult to understand. He's a product of his day and he is writing for his contemporaries and there's a style and then language changes over time. There's a style. And of course, some people will read Deutsch having been used to, well, look, I don't want to mention names, but let's just say other works in the non-fiction section. And sure, they're often narratives, uh, potted histories of ideas and stuff. And one gets the impression with certain so-called popular science works that barely deserve the title, perhaps, that the author is a frustrated screenwriter. It's almost as if they need a plot and characters and so on. But Deutsch, on the other hand, is giving you the ideas rapid fire at high density. And as everyone observes, you know, his works are completely counter to oh, what you usually know coming into them, which is also like Popper. The first and foremost reason for writing the works, in the case of Popper and Deutsch, it's not to entertain, but a lot of popular science and a lot of non-fiction stuff out there today is to do that. And Popper and Deutsch are informing you in an efficient way. Now, I just happen to have a preference. Personally, I do think they're entertaining because they're thrilling. But yes, I guess I've been persuaded that perhaps some extra background knowledge is needed at times. 
I was already coming from a physics philosophy background and so was impressed because there simply is nothing like the fabric of reality and the beginning of infinity elsewhere in existence. Perhaps Gerdel Escherbach gets closest, but even then, not really. I read Popper as part of my university studies, but it was very limited and was in a context where I had to read a bunch of other stuff as well alongside him. And he was sort of treated like this minor fringe character. Wittgenstein was the real guy. Hume, Descartes, Leibniz, Spinoza, Berkeley, Kant, the classics, in other words, from the 17th and 18th centuries. And of course, all the ancients, they were the real stuff. The 20th century was basically Wittgenstein, like I say, with uh, minor appearances by Kripke, Quine, Feyerabend and Lakatosh and some others. So to be honest, it was only once I'd read The Fabric of Reality in 1997 or so, and then I read the recommended reading at the end of that book. And first on the list was something by Richard Dawkins, The Selfish Gene, so I read that. And then uh, I really liked that, so I read his book, The Extended Phenotype. That wasn't on the list, but I also thought that was great. Then I skipped to Conjectures and Refutations by Popper, which I had picked up in the university library once or twice before in order to write some essay or other, which I've long since forgotten. But I remember reading that book and thinking just how clear it was, relatively speaking, by comparison to the other philosophical works we were expected to read as part of our philosophy studies. The language it was modern by philosophical standards. And this guy Popper was talking about actual science which none of the others ever really did. The he talked about the discovery of Neptune, Hertz's discovery of electromagnetic waves, Lavoisier's experiments with combustion, Kepler, Galileo, Fresnel, Faraday, Maxwell. They kept appearing, they kept cropping up. I mean, perhaps not every single page, but there was meat on the bones, as I keep on saying. He's talking about how this or that was conjectured and how, about how the experiment was then done, the specific experiment that ruled out something or other. It wasn't a thought experiment. It was an experiment with real-life rays of light and glass lenses and concepts like refraction. As a physics student, this was clearly the stuff. It wasn't abstract. It was concrete. Actual places where philosophy explained what the scientists did and how science therefore made progress. He didn't care about definitions and the ultimate foundations of knowledge. He wrote about those things, but just to say... All of that is a pointless distraction, and he explained why. We want to know what this knowledge stuff is and how it grows and changes the world. And he wrote about optimism and liberty and how authorities who claimed to know the truth were a dangerous kind of a thing. And not just in religion, in politics and science, everywhere. And I mean, in comparison to Wittgenstein and Kant and many of the classics, it's just night and day. Now again, personally, I quite like Descartes and Leibniz. But I like them now, in retrospect, in the same way that I kind of like Lord of the Rings. Maybe not quite as much as Lord of the Rings, but the same sort of thing. The language that is used and the journey that you go on. You have to suspend your sense of disbelief, of course, and you just go on the journey, all the while knowing it's not real. This is all a myth. But of course, myths can teach you something. Even in myth, truth can be found. And besides, I like to know what Popper is talking about, who these people are he's referring to. So knowing a little bit about people like Descartes and Leibniz helps with that because he is referring to them a lot. He is referring to the so-called classic and the ancient philosophers. So I get that if you don't know much philosophy already or the history of ideas, then reading Popper has that drawback somewhat. He keeps referring to these other usually much older philosophers, which I suppose kind of makes him a little bit like Tolkien with Lord of the Rings or George R. R. Martin with Game of Thrones. If you're not on top of things early on as you're reading these books, then the rate at which you're encountering new characters can be off-putting. You just get lost in the new names and places. So what I'm doing today here is reading from one of Popper's works. 
having a bit of a refresher after all of the critiquing I've been doing. Not to say I'm not going to be critiquing today. I will be, but just not in the same style because, hey, there's not much to critique. There's just a lot to celebrate. This particular work is called On the Sources of Knowledge and Ignorance. It's about how the two main approaches to where knowledge comes from, you know, does it come from an empirical means via our senses, or does it come from pure reason or some combination of both? And if it does, how? What do the other philosophers say? All of that stuff. This is really about the history of ideas, about how we know what we know and what ways people have traditionally said how it is we know what we know. Now, I'm doing this because I was reading this piece again, and just so many passages not only stand the test of time in terms of substance, but style. The content here is relevant even today, and the style, the clarity, well, that's one thing. But for me, some of these passages are powerful because of the sharpness and poignancy of what he says. Now, as I say, I'm not just going to fawn over him. There are some places where I kind of disagree, where I'd love to speak to him about why he wasn't going all in, so to speak, where he might have been conceding to his contemporaries or the possible objections that were going to crop up in his mind. So this won't just be me reading and giving uncritical praise. It's a celebration of Popper's work for sure and how it is head and shoulders above others for so many reasons. Now, this particular piece can be found in a few different places, but notably it begins the book Conjectures and Refutations, the first one, the first book of Popper's recommended by David Deutsch in The Fabric of Reality. So though I read it years ago after reading that work by David on his recommendation effectively, it's taken until now for me to finally come back to it again in full. And I think with new eyes, here he is solving actual problems in philosophy and epistemology right before your eyes. But it's just a preface to a much more substantial philosophy about how knowledge is generated and what he says, for example, in the rest of Conjectures and Refutations about science. So here he's He's sort of just setting the scene by going to the heart of matters about the errors other philosophers make. And so he names them and explains their positions, giving lots of references, lots of examples, lesson there for any other philosophers. And this is nice because for a non-philosopher, he's teaching you about the history of ideas in philosophy. So you don't really actually need to know in this particular part what Hume and Descartes and Spinoza wrote about and what they were interested in because he'll tell you. And then he'll tell you how they were wrong and what the right stuff is. Now, this will be part one of a podcast series. I presume it'll go over at least two because I'm not going to get through it all today. And like I say, you can just contrast this style and the substance of his writing with any of those critiques I've done recently. Even some of the more modern writing I sometimes critique where people write whole books, even by experts on writing. And this is Popper not even writing in his first language, which is all the more impressive. So anyway, let's get to this remarkable piece by Popper. He begins with a quote, and the quote is by a William Harvey. Quote, True philosophers who are burning with love for truth and learning never see themselves as wise men brimful of knowledge, for most of them would admit that even the very greatest number of things of which we know is only equal to the very smallest fraction of things of which we are ignorant. Nor are these philosophers so addicted to any kind of tradition or doctrine that they suffer themselves to become their slaves and thus lose their liberty, end quote. William Harvey. William Harvey was an English physician, a scientist, 
who lived towards the end of the 1500s and well into the 1600s. So there, Popper, straight away, he's referring to a guy who was engaged in science. And even back then, this fella, a thoroughgoing fallibilist and someone who understands the growth of knowledge, William Harvey, realises that we have a lot of ignorance. So you can see where Popper's getting his idea of infinite ignorance from there. People thought this before, that it doesn't matter how much progress we make, the amount we know is only going to be equal to the tiniest fraction of things of which we're ignorant. Popper goes on with another quote from Spinoza this time, and he quotes Spinoza as saying, quote, It follows, therefore, that truth manifests itself. End quote. That's Spinoza. So Spinoza was a, a great believer in the faculty of reason, the faculty of reason giving us certain knowledge of a kind. And then we get a quote from David Hume, and he quotes Hume as saying, quote, It is impossible for us to think of anything which we have not antecedently felt, either by our external or internal senses, end quote. So there we have Hume saying, well, you can't know anything unless it's come to you via your senses at some point in time. Well, there we go. So we've got these two ideas there. Truth manifesting itself, and also, whatever you know has to come to you via your senses. And the name of this piece by Popper is called On the Sources of Knowledge and of Ignorance. And Popper goes on to say, quote, The title of this lecture is likely, I fear, to offend some critical ears. For although sources of knowledge is in order, and sources of error would have been in order too, the phrase sources of ignorance is another matter. Ignorance is something negative. It is the absence of knowledge. But how on earth can the absence of anything have sources? This question was put to me by a friend when I confided to him the title I had chosen for this lecture. I was a little shaken by this, for I had been, I confess, quite pleased with the title. Hard-pressed for a reply, I found myself improvising a rationalisation and explaining to my friend that the curious linguistic effect of the title was actually intended. I told him that I hoped to direct attention through the phrasing of this title to a number of historically important though unrecorded philosophical doctrines, and among them especially to a conspiracy theory of ignorance, which interprets ignorance not as a mere lack of knowledge, but as the work of some mischievous power, the source of impure and evil influences which pervert and poison our minds and instill in us the habit of resistance to knowledge, end quote. Right, and so what Popper is saying there is that there are these other people he's going to talk about at length in this piece that insist that, well, we get knowledge either from nature by simply, it comes to us via our senses. This is the empiricist doctrine. And so therefore you've got this problem of how to explain ignorance and how to explain error. Because that can't come to you via your senses. Something must have gone wrong, but what is it? Well, there must be some great conspiracy Something is conspiring against you. Perhaps other people, the evil other people, are trying to deceive you in some way. And this might be one of the only reasons that you end up making errors. Because perhaps your reason, this pure reason that you have, your, your mind's capacity to understand the world, well, it can't be polluted itself. It can't be naturally error-prone. Can't allow that. And so therefore, again, the only way in which you're going to make errors is if there is some active conspiracy. Something is deceiving you. Usually other people, these evil other people that are out there. And there's a note here that I think it's worth reading. Uh, Popper's written a note at the bottom of the page about Descartes and Spinoza, who he said, went even further and asserted that not only ignorance, but also error is something negative. 
a privation of knowledge and even of the proper use of our freedom. And he gives some references to their work there. But, you know, I would say kind of ignorance is just zero. It's a nothingness. It's neither positive nor negative. A negative is something, <laughs> but ignorance is not that. It's the lack of something. It's just not knowing something. And the, the knowledge is the positive something. But it too contains ignorance. It's not the complete picture, so to speak. There can never be a complete picture. Anyway, Popper says, after having talked about the conspiracy theory of ignorance, okay, okay, keep that in mind, this conspiracy theory of ignorance. The idea is there is a conspiracy keeping you ignorant because after all, as you will explain, according to these other people, your senses and or your reason together are going to give you knowledge by which they mean some sort of justified true belief, something like that anyway, that's going to give you truth in some way. So for whatever reason they assume, they've all got different reasons, some are religious and uh, some are not so religious, they just think that reason, you can just, well, as I've been saying recently, one prominent <laughs> 20th century philosopher said, you can observe the facts of reality, that kind of thing. So if you think that kind of thing, you've got a real problem for your epistemology because so much of epistemology should be about error and ignorance and how that arises and how you overcome it. Rather than you're just given the truth in some way, you're just handed reality by your senses and by your reason. And so you're saying the conspiracy theory of ignorance is the way those people explain why it is that so many people are ignorant. Okay, there's some sort of evil going on in the sense that an active conspiracy to keep the facts away from you, typically by other people, as we'll see. And what Popper says about this, quote, I am not quite sure whether this explanation allayed my friend's misgivings, but it did silence him. Your case is different since you were silenced by the rules of the present transactions. I can only hope that I have allayed your misgivings sufficiently for the time being to allow me to begin my story at the other end, with the sources of knowledge rather than with the sources of ignorance. However, I shall presently come back to the sources of ignorance and also to the conspiracy theory of those sources, end quote. <laughs> so that's quite nice. He's saying there that um, uh, we, <laughs> the reader and the listener in your case, are silent for another reason because of the rules of the present transaction. <laughs> Namely, he's, he's written the book and he's not there to answer our questions. But we can just articulate them anyway as we go along. So all of that was just the introduction. And what he's really about to get into is part one. So part one, quote, The problem which I wish to examine afresh in this lecture, and which I hope not to only examine but to solve, may perhaps be described as an aspect of the old quarrel between the British and the continental schools of philosophy, the quarrel between the classical empiricism of Bacon, Locke, Berkeley, Hume and Mill and the classical rationalism or intellectualism of Descartes, Spinoza and Leibniz. In this quarrel, the British school insisted that the ultimate source of all knowledge was observation, while the continental school insisted that it was the intellectual intuition of clear and distinct ideas, end quote. So I can see now myself as I look back, because as I say, you know, having when I first started university, I went and studied philosophy. I hadn't encountered Popper yet, but I did encounter, you know, Descartes was one of the first, and he would talk about these clear and distinct ideas. And no matter how much the lecturers and tutors would try and explain to me this concept of clear and distinct idea and what Descartes was saying about how you can't be wrong about your clear and distinct idea, I didn't get it. Already then, I was a fallibilist of a kind. I mean, I didn't understand how you could just understand stuff without error. I think perhaps what was in my mind was I, I was understand I was also doing a little bit of computer science at the time. You know, I'd done basic computer science in high school, and a whole bunch of stuff there was about when you transmit messages, 
it's almost never reliable. So you need these error correction things when you transmit a message from one place to another. And I thought, well, if even digital systems are going to make errors all the time and, and the fact that they, they were always making errors, so you need this error correction stuff. Although I didn't understand computational universality at that point, I understood error was kind of ubiquitous. So we'd be making it. I'd learned that already from computer science. So I didn't understand why this wasn't taken more seriously in philosophy. Why should we be inerrant? What is this clear and distinct nonsense? <laughs> <laughs> clear and distinct ideas that the continental school had come up with, okay, these Europeans <laughs> and their idea of clear and distinct ideas. Once you had a clear and distinct idea, that's it. You could have a clear and distinct idea that you existed and therefore you could not possibly be in error about that. And I bought that, but I didn't buy how any of the other things could be perfectly clear and distinct. You know, I think Descartes said that mathematics was a clear and distinct idea. So he couldn't possibly be wrong about that. And I didn't get that because I knew I made mistakes in the mathematics exam. So explain that. <laughs> okay, let's keep going. Let's see what Popper has to say next. Quote, Most of these issues are still very much alive. Not only has empiricism, still the ruling doctrine in England, conquered the United States, but it is now widely accepted even on the European continent as the true theory of scientific knowledge. Cartesian intellectualism, alas, has been only too often distorted into one or another of the various forms of modern irrationalism. I shall try to show in this lecture that the differences between classical empiricism and rationalism are much smaller than their similarities and that both are mistaken, end quote. Classic popper, classic popper, here you go. It's always going to show you the third way. So you've got, here's a plausible sounding story. Here's another plausible sounding story. I'm going to show you that they're both implausible after all. <laughs> I think David Deutsch has said, has quipped something like that before. In the case that both of these make grand claims about how knowledge is created, that doesn't prevent them from both being completely mistaken. And they are. So let's keep going. Popper says, quote, I hold that they are mistaken, although I am myself both an empiricist and a rationalist of sorts. But I believe that, though observation and reason each have an important role to play, these roles hardly resemble those which their classical defenders attributed to them. More especially, I shall try to show that neither observation nor reason can be described as a source of knowledge in the sense in which they have been claimed to be sources of knowledge down to the present day, end quote. And the end of part one of this piece, of this lecture as he's calling it. So empiricism, as we say, you know, Popperian is a kind of empiricist in the sense that observation is absolutely crucial in the sciences. What's the role of observations? Twofold. The observation can either be a source of a problem of some sort. You know, you make this observation, you don't understand what's going on. Is your experiment flawed? Is your observation flawed? Or is there something about your present understanding of the scientific theory that's flawed? Certainly some theory is flawed. It's either the theory of observations or the theory of science. You know, in other words, you have a misconception. There's something going wrong. There's something you don't know. There's a problem with your theories. Observations are theory-laden, and so therefore you've got a problem when the observation doesn't fit with your theory. So that's one function of observations. And the other, well, you make an observation when you've got competing theories to rule out all of them except for one, and then you are back to an unproblematic state. So that is what Popper's position is and what he is going to explain in this paper. And the purpose of reason is to deduce stuff, to, to actually figure out that, well, you know, when you make this observation, you've falsified some theories. That's the point of the observation. So reason can allow you to see which of your theories has been refuted and which have gone unrefuted. But again, as he says, 
that's not your source of knowledge. Your source of knowledge comes from within. It's conjectured from within. Okay, let's do section two now. And Popper writes, quote, Our problem belongs to the theory of knowledge or to epistemology, reputed to be the most abstract and remote and altogether irrelevant region of pure philosophy. Hume, for example, one of the greatest thinkers in the field, predicted that because of the remoteness and abstractness and practical irrelevance of some of his results, none of his readers would believe in them for more than an hour, end quote. So notice how Popper begins there. Our problem belongs to the theory of knowledge. Our problem it's problem-centered. All of this is problem-centered. He's asking a question. And in this case, he's asking the question of, well, what is our source of knowledge and what is our source of ignorance? Okay, because the other philosophers can't account for this. They're not accounting for it at all. He's recognized the problem, the problem being, well, you can't just read from the book of nature, empiricism is false, and your faculty of reason is fallible, so it can't be the case that you get these clear and distinct ideas. So then how do you get knowledge? What is knowledge and where does ignorance come from and all this sort of stuff? This is our problem, the problem within epistemology. And he's also having a dig there at, you know, just about every other philosopher who says that, well, epistemology is thought to be the most abstract and remote and altogether irrelevant region of pure philosophy. Of course, He's going to show, and his entire life's work shows, no, this is really, really practical stuff. And it's because people don't have the right epistemology. They go wrong in everywhere else. They become authoritarian. They become dogmatic. They even become Bayesian. <laughs> they become prophets, and they try and predict stuff which is inherently unknowable. All of this kind of a thing. They, they, they say that certain things are science that aren't science, and they want to have a science of politics and sociology and morality and all this sort of stuff. So it's very practical. People can waste their lives doing certain stuff because they've got a false epistemology. Popper goes on to say, quote, Kant's attitude was different. He thought that the problem, what can I know, was one of the three most important questions a man could ask. Bertrand Russell, in spite of being closer to Hume in philosophic temperament, seems to side in this matter with Kant. And I believe that Russell is right when he attributes to epistemology practical consequences for science, for ethics, and even for politics. He points out, for example, that epistemological relativism, or the idea that there is no such thing as objective truth, and epistemological pragmatism, or the idea that truth is the same as usefulness, are closely linked with authoritarian and totalitarian ideas, end quote. And what does Popper end up quipping at some point? He says, the doctrine that the truth is manifest is the root of all tyranny. He eventually reaches that conclusion. So he agrees there with Russell. The Russell thinks that, yes, this whole idea that somehow you can have the truth, that it's the same as usefulness, are linked with authoritarianism and totalitarianism. He goes on, Popper goes on to say, quote, Russell's views are, of course, disputed. Some recent philosophers have developed a doctrine of the essential impotence and practical irrelevance of all genuine philosophy, and thus one can assume of epistemology. Philosophy, they say, cannot by its very nature have any significant consequences, and so it can influence neither science nor politics. But I think that ideas are dangerous and powerful things, and that even philosophers have sometimes produced ideas Indeed, I have no doubt that this new doctrine of the impotence of all philosophy is amply refuted by the facts, end quote. <laughs> so who's he talking about? <laughs> He's talking about Wittgenstein there, of course, and, and, and Wittgenstein's disciples and followers, and sadly, a whole bunch of people who were influenced by Wittgenstein, the very guy who I said at the beginning 
wrote the book Philosophical Investigations that is regarded as the most important work of the 20th century by university teachers. Well, there you go. Most important work, uh, when you take a vote, when you take the straw poll of the university professors, is by Wittgenstein, and in fact by citation in the social sciences and the humanities, I think it is still Thomas Kuhn, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. I think that is still the most cited work. Which, among other things, says Popperians have a lot of work to do. The work is still all ahead of us. And the next paragraph is one of the ones that I sort of highlighted in my introduction to this whole piece, where I was saying that I really do think at times that Popper's substance is second to none, but also his style is absolutely brilliant as well. And here's one of those sections of clarity that I would say has a certain poignancy even through to today. What he's saying echoes across the decades and speaks directly to us about our circumstance. And although he's talking about epistemology and science, here he brings it into another realm, the very practical world of politics and law. And he writes, quote, The situation is really very simple. The belief of a liberal, the belief in the possibility of a rule of law, of equal justice, of fundamental rights, and a free society, can easily survive the recognition that judges are not omniscient and may make mistakes about facts, and that, in practice, absolute justice is hardly ever realised in any particular legal case. But this belief in the possibility of a rule of law, of justice, and of freedom can hardly survive the acceptance of an epistemology which teaches that there are no objective facts, not merely in this particular case, but in any other case, and that the judge cannot make a factual mistake because he can no more be wrong about the facts than he can be right, end quote. So there we go. He's saying there that, you know, this is the importance of philosophy. You need to have an epistemology because if you've got an epistemology that's relativist, then you're going to just presume there's no right or wrong when it comes to these absolutely crucial matters of jurisprudence and politics. The idea that there are criminals out there doing objectively wrong stuff. Now, you don't get that from Wittgenstein. Wittgenstein is like, oh, well, you know, there's no such thing as a, a practical philosophy. There's no point of philosophy. But hold on. Epistemology is a part of philosophy. And if you're going around being a relativist and teaching students relativism, then there is no objectively right or wrong morality. Because the epistemology says there is no such thing as objectively right and wrong. But this is a problem for philosophy. It's a genuine philosophical problem. You know, Wittgenstein... <laughs> Wittgenstein is the one who gets all the props. Wittgenstein is the one that is, oh, the greatest philosopher of the 20th century. Really? Really? By what standard? But we're up to section three now. In section three, Popper writes, quote, The great movement of liberation, which started in the Renaissance and led through the many vicissitudes of the Reformation and the religious and revolutionary wars to the free societies in which the English-speaking peoples are privileged to live, this movement was inspired throughout by an unparalleled epistemological optimism, by a most optimistic view of man's power to discern truth and to acquire knowledge. At the heart of this new optimistic view of the possibility of knowledge lies the doctrine that truth is manifest. Truth may perhaps be veiled, but it may reveal itself. And if it does not reveal itself, it may be revealed by us. Removing the veil may not be easy, but once the naked truth stands revealed before our eyes, we have the power to see it, to distinguish it from falsehood, and to know that it is truth. The birth of modern science and modern technology was inspired by this optimistic epistemology whose main spokesmen were Bacon and Descartes. They taught that there was no need for any man to appeal to authority in matters of truth because each man carried the sources of knowledge in himself, either in his power of sense perception, 
which he may use for the careful observation of nature, or in his power of intellectual intuition, which he may use to distinguish truth from falsehood by refusing to accept any idea which is not clearly and distinctly perceived by the intellect, end quote. So there we go. There's Popper setting all the bricks up to be knocked down. <laughs> He's telling you there that on the one hand, this is all great stuff. It did allow us to escape from a certain kind of authoritarianism. But in its place, it set up something better, but still not as good as what Popper himself is going to explain. Namely that even though we've gotten rid of these authorities, these authorities on truth, like the source of knowledge being the holy book or the source of knowledge being the priest or some other authority who claims the authority of possessing the truth. Well, every person's carrying around with them the faculties to be able to find the truth. Now, the problem with Descartes and Bacon is, of course, they thought that you could actually get the truth. The final once and for all truth was going to be manifest either via your senses or via using your intellect, your intuition, your reason. And Popper's, of course, going to say, those two things are absolutely crucial, but not quite in that way. They are both error-prone. We have to interpret our way to actual knowledge, and the knowledge itself is merely useful information that contains some truth, but it's not the final word. Okay, It's going to be an explanation of the facts, which can always itself be subject to error and subject to improvement. He goes on to say, quote, Man can know, thus he can be free. This is the formula which explains the link between epistemological optimism and the ideas of liberalism. This link is paralleled by the opposite link, Disbelief in the power of human reason, in man's power to discern the truth, is almost invariably linked with distrust of man. Thus, epistemological pessimism is linked historically with a doctrine of human depravity, and it tends to lead to the demand for the establishment of powerful traditions and the entrenchment of a powerful authority which would save man from his folly and his wickedness. There is a striking sketch of this theory of authoritarianism and a picture of the burden carried by those in authority in the main story of the Grand Inquisitor in Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov. The contrast between epistemological pessimism and optimism may be said to be fundamentally the same as that between epistemological traditionalism and rationalism. I am using the latter term in its wider sense, in which it is opposed to irrationalism and in which it covers not only Cartesian intellectualism but empiricism also. For we can interpret traditionalism as the belief that, in the absence of an objective and discernible truth, we are faced with the choice between accepting the authority of tradition and chaos, while rationalism has, of course, always claimed the right of reason and of empirical science to criticise and to reject any tradition and any authority as being based on sheer unreason or prejudice or accident." End quote. So there we have an earlier version of a kind of divide between an epistemological optimism and pessimism. It's genesis there in the work of Popper here to some extent, but subtly different. Recall what David Deutsch's principle of optimism is. All evils are due to a lack of knowledge. So in a sense, the source of evil is ignorance, if you like. So evil can be remedied with knowledge, which, as I've said, is a special case of problems are soluble. Now, what Popper is saying about optimism is that He's saying it is possible to have knowledge, to actually create it. He's saying that these people, Bacon and Descartes, are going a little bit further with their epistemological optimism. Their version entails that we can find the final truth, some objective final truth. But of course, we would say today that 
well, we can't state a final truth. We can't say what it is because, well, true and false are properties of propositions anyways, and we can't speak of those, only approximations to them. But we certainly admit our explanations contain truth. Knowledge contains some truth, also contains some falsehood. It is simply the information that solves a problem, and so it gets copied. Now, of course, the classic philosophies he mentions... Bacon and his empiricism and Descartes and his rationalism, they think that this truth can be had in some final way. Their vision of knowledge was that it was a justified truth of some kind. So it's sort of somewhat astonishing to me that this vision in some form or other persists to this day. The influence of the French and German intellectuals cannot be underestimated. Across Europe, across all of the Western world, America is a particular case in point. American intellectuals today, if my own experience is anything to go by, are plagued by a similar intellectual inheritance. They think that a final truth is not only possible, but desirable. That pure reason, so to speak, is an exercise we perform on the evidence, which accumulates to a point where it cannot be denied. It's beyond all doubt and is perfectly convincing, you know, that kind of thing. And so, of course, this final truth can be possessed. And once you possess it, well, you've got the truth, and so you better want to defend it. And you're also in a superior and perhaps lofty moral place as one of the educated elite. So there is that bad turn. But, you know, at least we have the admission that knowledge is possible, that solving problems is possible, even under this this form of uh, pessimistic epistemological optimism. It stands in stark contrast to the competing impulse that knowledge is not possible at all. And this is the intellectual pessimism that Popper speaks of, where it is thought that people should be distrusted in general because we cannot know, and hence we have to be saved from our folly and wickedness, as he said right there. So this requires powerful traditions, as Immanuel Kant argued. On the one hand, he argued for freedom of thought, Immanuel Kant. But on the other hand, he also argued for people to be subjects who obeyed their princes, and presumably strong princes. As Roy Porter quipped in his Creation of the Modern World, Kant might easily be called a timid state functionary. <laughs> he, he seems to think that this was a person's highest calling, Kant I mean, to serve in the state, to serve the state in some capacity or other. Though he's free to think, he's also expected to fall in line, to be an obedient servant of the prince. So he was authoritarian to the core when you really read him, continental in his outlook. He was no Mill, he was no Godwin, he was no Popper. Better than Plato, perhaps, but barely. It would seem to me that epistemological optimists of Descartes' kind, who thought knowledge was possible, and indeed absolutely true knowledge was possible to come by, they're quite dangerous in politics. Because their epistemological optimism is the claim that the final truth is recognisable by you when you have it. You know it must be the final truth when you've got a hold of it. And the idea this is possible, that's a very scary one, because... That indeed is the truth is manifest crowd. Once you've got the final truth, you're apt to defend it and to defend it to the death. That view of the world is almost as bad, I have to say it is as bad, as the view that, well, you're just a pathetic human incapable of thinking for yourself. So let the state do it for you. In either case, the authorities are needed. It's all terribly anti-human. Of course, what we know now following David Deutsch is that optimism is better considered as a philosophy of ignorance. We can cure our ignorance by correcting our errors, and this means infinite progress and a reduction in the evils around the world. That's infinitely optimistic because you never run out of ignorance. You can just get rid of little bits and pieces of it. But you're always, just like everyone else, 
infinitely ignorant. Pessimism is the denial of all that. The claim progress must come to an end or error correction must. It's a prophecy about the future content of our explanations, that they will be self-contained in some way or that our intellects are bounded. Pessimism has this link to a known future and hence it is prophetic to the core. So it's no accident that the converse holds as well. Prophets tend to be pessimists. They imagine all the problems, but they can't imagine the logical conjunction of all the problems, and that's easy to imagine, and all the solutions, which are hard to imagine. Let me just read part four, and then we'll call it a day here. This goes up to part 18. I think I'll get through all of them. It's going to take about three reads, I think. Part four from Popper begins, quote, It is a disturbing fact that even an abstract study like pure epistemology is not as pure as one might think, and as Aristotle believed, but that its ideas may, to a large extent, be motivated and unconsciously inspired by political hopes and by utopian dreams, should this be a warning to the epistemologist? What can he do about it? As an epistemologist, I have only one interest, to find the truth about the problems of epistemology, whether or not this truth fits with my political ideas, but am I not liable to be influenced unconsciously by my political hopes and beliefs? It so happens that I am not only an empiricist and a rationalist of sorts, but also a liberal in the English sense of the term. But just because I am a liberal, I feel that few things are more important for a liberal than to submit the various theories of liberalism to a searching critical examination. While I was engaged in a critical examination of this kind, I discovered the part played by certain epistemological theories in the development of liberal ideas and especially by the various forms of epistemological optimism. And I found that, as an epistemologist, I had to reject these epistemological theories as untenable. This experience of mine may illustrate the point that our dreams and our hopes need not necessarily control our results, and that, in searching for the truth, it may be our best plan to start by criticising our most cherished beliefs. This may seem to some a perverse plan, but it will not seem so to those who want to find the truth and are not afraid of it, end quote. So there Popper is concluding that this epistemological optimism, well, it's a fool's game. It's a fool's errand. There's no way of getting to this truth that can be recognized as the final truth. But why as well? What has it got to do with these liberal ideas? Well, the liberal idea is that people are free, free to try and go about their own lives, trying to understand the world and solve their own problems. And of course, they're going to make errors along the way, but they have to be free to be able to do that, free to have the discussions, free to learn about stuff by the method of trial and error, not being controlled, not having authorities rule over them. This is what Popper was concerned about through, of course, his political philosophy as well. And so it has a direct connection here, as he says, in trying to critique that liberal view of the world he realises that, well, if people are going to be free, they're going to make mistakes because they're never going to get to the final answer. And so it's directly connected to the epistemology. There's no divorcing the epistemology from the politics or the political science, if you like, the political philosophy. It can't be the case that the truth is manifest. If it were, then you'd have an authority who could possess that final truth and could just command everyone else to do what the ultimate final truth tells them is the good, the right thing to do. Because anything that stands against that cannot be the good. It can't be the truth. It would be an evil, and the evil can't be allowed to stand. Now, we can agree that the evil can't be allowed to stand, but evil is a kind of ignorance. And the only way of removing ignorance is by 
creating more knowledge. It's a positive vision. And everyone is infinitely ignorant and always will be, always will be infinitely ignorant, even though there are these little bits and pieces that each of us can learn and come to know, perhaps better than anyone else, but still, still, the little bits and pieces that we know are just what makes us different one from another. But we are all of us, as Popper says, equal in our infinite ignorance. We'll be getting more from Popper next time when I go on with part five. But for now, bye-bye.